Welcome to the Ignition Podcast, which takes your life for cars and shows you the possibilities. I have conversations with people in automotive and motorsport to discover how they got to where they are today. CEOs, racing drivers, influencers and more. If you're interested in how these people live their lives and what they've done to get to where they are today, you're in the right place. The reality is, even if it's not the best price for some people, they certainly want the honest answers. If you can't get a sale, get a friend. You can't always win on everything, but if you build a relationship with that customer, because you're there to help them, you're an advisor for them. In the end, the truth will come out whether you can or can't help them. In the old days, it was great news, come here, sign that, there you go. And you can be out of a car in, you know, in 10 minutes. My driver, and obviously getting out of the poverty and what I grew up with, I didn't want that same scenario to happen for my kids growing up. To me, the world was massive and I wanted to experience the world itself. I've always imagined being in the army as a car enthusiast is amazing. You get your license for free, drive tanks for free, and you get to have fun and meet amazing people. But actually, it's quite the opposite. There's basic training, which people don't actually get through. And if you do, you leave after and say you've been in the army. But the ones that persevere, that's when the hard work begins. You travel the world with your best friends. You have amazing camaraderie. I've always admired the army and what they do. But what if the people you spent all your time with and have those shared experiences rip you off? This isn't a story of bullets, guns and cars. This is one caused by your own ripping you off. Steve left the army and wanted to buy his first car. But when he went to a dealership run by veterans, they ripped him off. So Steve decided to change that. He became a car salesman, learned the ropes and then started his own dealership, giving the army and showing the discounts that can be given to service veterans. Now, if you want to know more about how Steve's done this, give it a listen. It's okay to talk, right? Well, Tacona is a brand that's changing mental health awareness. I have always been one that's found it hard to talk and that my feelings, well, they weren't exactly best spoken. Once I found Tacona and learned more about what Lewis does, I was amazed that a clothing brand is making people aware just with one simple logo. If you see a Tacona t-shirt, a shirt, a cap, a hat, a sticker, whatever it is, you know that person knows it's okay to talk. And because they want to help spread the message, Tacona is giving us 10% off. So if you listen to this podcast, in the show notes below will be a link to the website. And if you use code Ignition10, you get 10% off store-wide products. So enjoy and enjoy the rest of the episode. Steve, what ignited your passion for cars? Um... I guess, I guess when you grow up, when you're young, you always want to have something nice, you know, a nice car, um, you know, when you're young, it's always a sports car, isn't it? You know, a two door top down type driving around in the summer. I guess that's, that's what my real passion was when I was, when I was a youngster. Um, whereas now I'm more practical. I want an SUV, you know, I put my golf clubs in the back and uh, go on long journeys with the family, I guess, Harry. And so the, I guess we look at the the people around you then, the people that sort of shaped you growing up? Because I know that's always an interesting point to stand from any car enthusiast. Like for me, my love of cars comes from living in a nice place in England. There's lots of cars around. I've always seen like Rolls Royces. I've seen Ferraris. It's, it's very nice for me. I've had a very privileged upbringing. But what was it like for you growing up? Um, what were the, the cars that you maybe saw that were like, oh, I like that? Yeah, Um never really saw anything fun so i grew up mainly in newcastle so uh born in london parents were in the military so we traveled around a bit and most of my memories from four 
till I was 13 were probably Newcastle. And um, so that would be you know, 70s, early 80s. So at that point, not many people had a family car. It was very, very rare, it, almost impossible anyone to. My dad did have a car. It was a Chrysler. I don't know the model. Um, it was SFT 939M. I'll never forget the reg number. Um, he had a van for work, which was a Ford Transit, which was YTY949B. So I, I seem to remember registration numbers um, from that side. And I suppose most people on our estates had things like Ford Granadas at the time, Ford Cortinas, Vauxhall, Cavalier, I think it was in those days. Um, but there was a time where um, you would go to places like Whitley Bay and place, you go past Pos posh houses and I do remember seeing at that point there was uh, a Rolls Royce I think it was a gold Rolls Royce um, don't know what type and I, and I used to think wow look at that beautiful house look at that beautiful lawn look at that driveway look at that nice car or I'm sure they had other cars in there as well but that was the car that I had memorized as I would say would be a wealthy person's house as a Rolls Royce wasn't something I wanted to go and buy, but it was nice. It was better than the car we were in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird now. You see the Cortinas and the Granadas, they're worth some money, isn't it? It's weird how that changes. Oh, absolutely. If you had an old one of those uh, knocking around now, you'd certainly get a lot a lot for it. Um, but, you know, in those days, obviously, you're a lot younger than me. But, I mean, there was no air con. There was no power steering. There was no electric windows. You know, you basically had a radio and that was probably it. And um, but you, you still enjoyed it, you know, because that was that was the world you lived in at that point, wasn't it? So. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was good. good. So, so what was it like, Stephen, having having parents in the military? Were, were, were they around a lot? I mean, I know that growing up, my dad was very much in insurance. So he wasn't there all the time. But, you know, the time we spent together, I do. Yeah. I do remember being quite fond of as a kid. So what was, you, what was yeah, that like for you anyway? I think. Um, both parents were in the military. I think they were both in London when they met. And um, by the time I remembered anything, they had pretty much left the military. So would they traveled, my mum was from York, uh, my dad was from Yorkshire, my mum was from Newcastle. So when they decided to leave, I guess, and raise the family, uh, it was Newcastle where we'd ended up living. So I was the only Leeds fan um, in Newcastle growing up in the 70s, um, in my school anyway. So... We didn't have much money. Um, I have a tradition of the military, so I've obviously, you know, bred that. You know, I like models, like soldiers, that type of thing, and uh, and always wanted to join the military as a kid. But for me, it was a it was a difficult childhood. I bunked off school, as what we call it, wagging school. Um, I didn't really pay attention to, to to school, and I loved history and geography, but I couldn't stand maths and English. And um, my dad, he was an alcoholic. Um, fortunately, he was a bit violent, so it was difficult with no money as well. Um, very, very difficult um, uh, growing up in, in the 70s, early 80s. Yeah, and so having parents that were in the military and what the story, I guess what, I'm interested in the stories they told you about it. I mean, what was so, did they ever talk to you about what time was like back then? Yeah, the, the one thing that I really took from that was discipline, essentially, um, I loved uniforms anyway. I always thought for me that that was something that I wanted to get to. And seeing the old photos of the uniforms, the ability to do sports. If you join the military, you just, you're away doing sport all the time, which was great. And I loved sports. 
the fact that you could then travel the world to different countries. Now, my mum didn't travel the world, but my dad did. You know, he went to Seychelles, Mozambique and Africa and, you know, other countries in Europe. And I always wanted, that was my view of wanting to join the military, was to, to travel the world. He never saw any combat operations, just, I think, his time in the military, mid, you know, late 60s to probably early 70s, other than Northern Ireland, there wasn't much going on in the world. So for me, the endearing memory that I had was I always wanted to join the military, always, and I wanted to travel the world. I didn't want to be stuck in growing up and living in the same area for the rest of my life and having the same pals. To me, the world was massive and I wanted to experience essentially the world itself that was my driver and obviously getting out of the poverty and what i grew up with i didn't want that same scenario to happen for my kids growing up yeah and so when it came like you know you were wagging off school if you will um and you were looking for a career yeah. what made you what made you choose the military what was what were the options for you i guess well for me success i guess when i'm younger i always wanted to join the military yes but success was also about you know, if you had a suit and a tie on at work, because in the 70s, people who had suits and ties on were people who had you know, a modicum of success. Um, but my driver wasn't to join the military at 16, which is what most people did who were my age. You know, they, you, you had to leave school normally when you were 16, uh, back in the 80s. You had to get your own flat, your own job. But I did that on my own uh, at that point. Today, kids are still at, still at home at 30 years old, aren't they? You know, so for me, I wanted to experience the world first, before I then decided to join the military and understood what civilian life was about. So I didn't have an exact time scale of, of what it wanted to do. Um, so I, I left home at 16, they got divorced. I found my own place, which happened to be in um, Slough uh, down south and, um, and had a few jobs, you know, loved, loved living life as I did as a youngster. Um, I couldn't drive at that point either. And when I was starting to get lessons, someone had said to me, you, the military, if you go in the military, they pay for that. And I thought, wow, well, when can I join? So I wasn't really sure how quick I could join. I just knew I wanted to. Um, so it was, I think, in January 1990. And um, April 1990 was when poll tax came around. You probably call it um, council tax now. And that was going to start in April 1990. So in January, I thought, I want to pay poll tax. I want to, uh, you know, I was 20 years old. I want to learn how to drive. All my mates were driving. It, it took me forever to get anywhere by train. And um, so I went into the careers office in Slough and spoke to someone. And he basically said, you know, as nice as pie, oh, come in, young lad, you know, you know, this is the army. And it's not like that when you join the first day, but, but um, you get, they get you in with a nice smile and a handshake. And, um, and basically said, what do I want to do? I didn't want to be a tanky. I didn't want to be infantry. Uh, I said, I just want to travel the world. That's really what I wanted to do. And he said, okay. So he showed me a brochure, which was the Army Air Corps, which is blue berets and the, an eagle on the, on the cap badge, and said, you can go to all these places in the world. That really had sold it. And I could work with helicopters. And I asked him about driving. He said, yeah, we'll teach you how to drive, and you'll travel to Germany. You'll travel to all these places. And I said, great, how long does it take to get in? Expecting to be like a year, year and a half. Friends of mine were joining the Marines. It took them a lot longer to get in. And he said, we've got an intake in April, which was like six weeks, seven weeks down the line. I'm like, oh. Um, so I didn't have to make the decision 
that much. Um, I thought, right, I definitely want to do that. And um, so I um, I came back, had some uh, thought about it and came back and signed my oath and so on. And then my intake was, I think, 3rd of, 3rd of April, 1990. Um, and, uh, and I was going down to join the Army Air Corps and the base was was St. John Moore Barracks, Winchester. I'll never forget it. John Moore Barracks, Winchester. Yeah. And so I guess you've, so you've grown up, you know, wanting success, you know, you're wanting that civic and tie and wanting to travel. And now you've got to this point where, great, the travel's here, right? That's maybe one of the things ticked off the list, you know, travel's there, it's great. When you joined the army, how hard was it to, you know, look for success? Were you, were you getting that suit and tie feeling or was it, was it something different? Um, it wasn't the suit and tie feeling. Um, what I did find very, very quickly was the camaraderie of what the military was, the brotherhood, if you want to call it that. Um, we joined up, I think, with 60 people on that intake, and I think only 30 passed. I think six people went after the first night. They were either crying or vomiting, and they just couldn't handle it, mostly younger. So I was, I think there were six people uh, out of the, the 60 odd people that were my age and older. Most people were 16, 17, 18 years old. And so they they couldn't find an adjustment to living in a barrack room with 12 other people and being shouted at six o'clock in the morning, you know, and being fed like cattle into the cookhouse and fed like cattle to here. Because I understood that, because it's what I always wanted to do, um, I, I, I relished it. Now, I wasn't a very fit guy. Um, I, I love sport. I'm great sport. I'm great. I was great at shooting. I was great at field craft and, you know, all of that army stuff. But fitness was my lacking. And I remember feeling at one point, maybe this was two or three weeks into the into the, the course. I thought, you know what, am I going to be able to, to pass this? Because it was tough having a 30 pound pack on the back. And yeah. um, but I remember my sergeant saying that don't be one of those guys that leaves the military after basic training and tells everyone you were in the military. And I came across people all the time like that since and before. For me, I wanted the, the feeling of saying that I had actually been in the military and I'd done it, I'd been to training, I'd been to posting and I'd done something five or six years or whatever it was. Um, so I didn't want to feel embarrassed by saying I could have done it or I had done it, but really only, only managed four weeks. So that inspired me, no matter how difficult it was, to go through and finish uh, the, the training itself. Now, that was 1990, and everyone will remember that that's when Iraq War One happened, where um, Iraq invaded um, Kuwait, which was August 1990. That was, that was during my basic training. And, um, and I remember saying, wow, it'll be great to take part in if there's any operations and we were going to go ahead and do that. So as soon as that happened, my next phase of my training was, was driver training. So I didn't learn to drive in a car or Land Rover. It was actually a truck first. <laughs> it was a, it was a four tonner MJ, no power steering either up in Leckenfield, uh, Hull, Driffield sort of area. Um, best six weeks of my life. Absolutely fantastic. And on that base actually was where they filmed parts of full metal jacket. Um, which was on that base. So it was nice to know, you know, uh, that it was a uh, famous, at least some little area. Um, once we passed our training, so if you passed in the truck, you essentially had passed in a, in a car from that side. 
But once you passed that, you um, you had a, a selection of postings that you could look at. And all of mine were overseas. So I picked everyone that was overseas, whether it was Bruggen or um, uh, uh, three or four places in Germany and Belize and Hong Kong or whatever. And, um, and I remember getting that posting letter through the post after my driver training. I was back in Andover with the Army Air Corps, the Army Air Corps which is Apache gunships today. It wasn't when we were in. And um, and I opened it up and it said, 4 Regiment Army Air Corps, Detmold, Germany. And I'd never been, never been so happy in my entire life to be then having that first opportunity, other than a, a day trip to France with the school, to actually go abroad and live for the very, very first time. And so I, I believe it was maybe 11th or 12th of September, 1990, that I um, ended up going overseas to, to Germany and pretty quickly found out how different it was to the UK, you know, and, um, but it was just, it was just fantastic. And our unit was earmarked at that point to go on the advance party for Op Granby, which is the first Gulf War. Uh, Op Granby was the British name, Desert Storm was the American name um, from that side. So um, yeah, really looking forward. Right. And so when you got to Germany, was there, I mean, you know, it's, again, this, this, this theme of like, you know, wanting to travel the world, you've, you've now traveled to Germany, exploring it there, but there was something in Germany that I guess caught your eye, wasn't there? It was a, a scheme of sorts. Um, well, tax-free schemes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone in Germany, you can buy a car tax-free essentially and save money on a vehicle and buy that. And, um, I, at that point, um, it's different. It's strange to see, but when you go to Germany and you've never driven other than a, a test vehicle in, in the UK, to actually then drive overseas was actually very, very daunting, very, very difficult to get used to. You had to go on to, um, it was called the tick test, where you had to do this German test with German signs and everything and go out with someone and understand uh, the mistakes that you can make in driving on the wrong side of the road. It happens all the time. So bearing in mind that I'd never driven a left-hand drive car or a truck ever before, and I had to then suddenly go out with 4,000 litres of aviation fuel and drive from one location to another, I've never just shit scared in my life uh, from that side. So all of that from September to the exercises and the training, getting ready for deployment, never really had an opportunity to buy my own car. So... At one point, I came back from a training exercise and someone said, you're due to go out to the Gulf on the advance party in December. And so I, before I knew it, I was literally um, getting ready to fly out from Ramstein all the way to, to Saudi Arabia to get ready for the thing. So my thought in my mind was, right, when I get back, I'm going to have money in my hands and I'm going to go out and buy a car, essentially. Um, so 11th of December, I flew out to uh, the advance party to, um, to Saudi Arabia. It was a. It was weird leaving two foot of snow in Germany to thirty degrees heat at six in the morning in Saudi Arabia in December, but uh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Do you get used to that? That that, that change in temperature. Um, yeah. The, the the greatest thing that I've learned in the military is you get used to any change of dynamic. Your training, it's almost instinct. It's almost instinctive. It, it's you don't have to think about what you need to do. You're just drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling. And whether it's um, going to Bavaria and doing 
um, you know, skiing or, or paragliding or whatever it is, canoeing and rock climbing, you're almost relishing the start of anything. So you, you just get into it very, very quickly. I've been lucky enough to go all around the world and to Canada and to other places. And it's just been a wild, wild ride in the military. And I, I did five years in the end, um, but um, um, five years was enough for me personally, essentially. Yeah, so it's, it's not just, I guess, your parents that taught you discipline growing up. It's that adaptability that the army does teach you as well to adapt to those, those, those places, those locations. Absolutely. Uh, and just being in the, in the squadron, because you might go in a squadron, you might know everyone in your squadron, but people get posted in, people get posted out. So there's always new people coming on board. Um, I was a bit of a gobby sprog, to be fair, um, when I joined up. I was 21. I thought I knew it all. And then you suddenly get told some lessons by some seniors when you when you turn up because they, they can they can knock you down instantly. You're either on continual guard or you're going to get a good kick in somewhere. Um, I never got a kick in, but I certainly got taught other lessons um, of cleaning toilets and shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, but you, yes, you still didn't have your first car, Steve. So what was that first car when you did get it? Yeah, so I came back from Germany. I had some money in my hand. Uh, you know, like most squaddies, you piss it up against the wall, as you do. But I wanted a car so I could travel back to the UK. And, um, and I asked everyone on base where to go to. And they essentially said, oh, go to those guys out the front of the base. They, they speak English or they were English. And um, so I went out there. I couldn't afford essentially a tax-free vehicle because they were still quite expensive. But they had this lovely used car there, um, red Rover 213S, that I thought, oh, that, that's a bit of me. You know, that's a, it's a saloon car. I, wasn't, I, I couldn't afford, again, a sports car. They were always too expensive. Uh, and this one, but if I remember, it was only something like three and a half thousand Deutschmarks or five thousand Deutschmarks at the time. So um, arranged a finance agreement and um, bought the car, um, DTEE three one seven. That was my reg of my first car, and I absolutely loved it. And it didn't have power steering, didn't have aircon, didn't have windy windows either, or electric windows. Sorry, um, but I absolutely loved that, and I had that probably for about six years, if I'm honest. It was a, it was a great car. It didn't hold the road very well, very thin tires, but it, it was good. It was an absolutely uh, beautiful vehicle to go from Germany to the UK. In. Yeah. I guess if you didn't have that sports car and you were now looking for work, Steve, what what, what was you what were you thinking at the time? What was young Steve leaving the army going, well, what do I do now? What was his options? Yeah, well, my, um, my base was being part of the drawdown to come back to the UK. Uh, I was married at the time to a German. It didn't work, but I wanted to stay in Germany myself. Um, so I essentially got out of the military and then became a, a civvy gate guard um, on one of the bases. Worked at British Airways as well. Worked on a base in a bar inside one of the camps, uh, trying to earn as much money as possible. Um, I, had, I was immensely debt because of the divorce. And, um, and I played a lot of golf, played a lot of football. And I met someone who um, asked for some help in a car showroom in Germany. Um, in JHQ. Now, previously, obviously, when I bought the car, someone had said, this is a great place to buy the vehicle. I bought this Rover. But what I didn't know at the time was I actually got ripped off on the finance agreement and I didn't really get treated as, as well as I expected to from a soldier. So when someone asked me to be a car salesman, I was like, oh, absolutely not. You know, I just don't trust them. They're all liars. And this guy said, look, we work for an American company. You know, we can do things differently. What were the problems that you had? You know, you're in charge of this showroom, so you can give that level of service 
if you want, to run the showroom to the soldiers that you should have had on base. Now, I'm a pan, I'm a person that always gives people opportunities and gives people uh, the idea to see if that is actually difference. And um, so I went then to... Thank you to each and everyone who watches, listens and shares this podcast. Without you and your support, we wouldn't have made it into the top 15 best car podcasts to listen to worldwide. So if you haven't already, please rate the podcast on this app. And if you listen to on Apple Podcasts, give it a review and let me know what you think. Again, thank you. And without your continued support, I wouldn't still be doing this. Now, back to past me. Gave it a trial on this on this base. I had no money. I had nothing to lose, really. So I ended up going to work for this car showroom in JHQ. And I absolutely loved it from day one. And the fact that I could have the ability to give the service that I think people should have had. And, um, and that was my starting journey, which was about 97 and 98 in, um, in Germany, selling cars. And so what, what did, so you, you wanted, you didn't want to become a car salesman, but then you were, you were sold the dream, I guess. So what was that level mm-hmm. of service you wanted to give? What was the level of service that you thought people did deserve when they came off that base and they wanted to buy a car? Well, I think, um, I think someone who was honest initially, um, because car dealers lie. They, they, they tell people that it's going to cost this or it's going to cost that. And it just wasn't right for me. I felt that people needed to be given the right level of service to start with and no real bullshit. So I was that type of person. It obviously allowed me to earn more money than I was earning at the time. So that was also a motivating factor. I've got to be honest, money was, was certainly the key. And what was really interesting was at that time, when you talk about posh cars and fancy cars, the showroom was a conduit to having cars being delivered all around Europe. So at the back of that showroom, almost every other week, we used to have Bentleys and Lamborghinis and, you know, and Aston Martins. And it was cool to then get the keys, just sit in it and have a little bit of a play as to see what that whole world was. And I'd moved up in cars from then as well. I'd had a, I'd gone to a Nissan Premiera, but I had big 19 inch alloys on it, a big spoiler on it. And, go back to the, the the sporty type of car that I wanted to get. Um, but again, I played golf, so I, I had to have gear in the back and space for that side of things. Um, but that was my starting of journey into the car trade uh, in, uh, in Germany. Yeah. And so how did you, how did you build up on that? What was what did your career look like? For those that, I guess, you know, car sales back then are probably different to they are now. I don't, I don't know. But for you, what was your tip and tricks for, for those that want to get into car sales? What would you recommend they start doing? Yeah, well, for me, I had um, I'd, I'd raised a lot of money, which was good. I bought a house, I was coming back to the UK, and I always wanted to set up my own business, being supplied um, from the manufacturers as opposed to being supplied from uh, just the individual dealers. So I had no entrepreneurial skill to look at that, but I had a desire to, to better myself as well and to, to learn on that. So I ended up coming back after being the top salesman for three years and setting up a business myself. Uh, in the UK, uh, giving back more of what I had done with a team to um, to the soldiers and, and save more money on those cars. And I think that um, the car trade isn't just about selling, it, it, you know, uh, management and this and that. There's so much within the car trade that people have an ingenuity for uh, of engineering or something else that I think that if people really want to go for something, they should seriously look at that. Car selling isn't just about selling cars and being a salesman. There's there's so much more within the car trade that people have an opportunity for, I think. Yeah. 
what, what made you see in, in yeah, retrospect? What made you think? Oh, sorry, I'll try that again. What did you think made you the best salesman? The best salesman for me was an ability to not have bad habits. Um, I hadn't I hadn't done it somewhere else and come to this, and I was doing the same thing over and over again, like a journeyman. Um, I knew what the client wanted or the customer, um, and most people. They want, firstly, yes, a good deal. Of course, they want the best price that they can. But the reality is, even if it's not the best price for some people, they certainly want the honest answers. And they on, they want someone that they can feel with. So if you can't get a sale, get a friend, is a, is a saying that we've always felt uh, in, the, in the trade. And that you can't always win on everything. But if you build a relationship with that customer, understand who that customer is, understand what you're trying to help them out because you're there to help them. You're an advisor for them. In the end, the truth will come out whether you can or can't help them. But if you're truthful enough to start with from day one and not make it about a price and a race to the bottom, then the reality is you're going to get more sales. And essentially, that's how I've always planned it. And I've, I factor that into not just, obviously, I don't sell anymore because I've got a team to do that. But I factor that in my whole business outlook and how I approach new clients and new partnerships and new opportunities. And that you have to have that more openness, listen, feeling, as opposed to just coming out and spelling something out on a presentation, because you have to have that feel. People buy from people. That phrase is not unused enough, not used enough. Um, and honest, honesty has to come to the front. And you can tell most people in, in sales, whether it's cars or something else, you can almost tell whether they're trying to sell you something straight away uh, and bullshit just will come out and you switch off. So you've got to be empathetic and um, and listen into an individual first before you're trying to, um, you know, finalize a deal in, in five minutes. In the old days, it was great news. Come here, sign that. There you go. And you can be out of a car, in, you know, in 10 minutes. It doesn't work like that nowadays. There's a lot more research. There's a lot more information I love the internet. I think the internet gives you absolutely everything that you want. Of course, we get customers who walk in and say, or on the phone, I've done my research. I like the price. Can I buy it? Even there and then. you still got to go through your process and introduce and do all your things. But in, mo in a lot of cases, you're, you're having to, you know, um, edge and, and, and flow the customer into what's the right thing for them long-term and not just push them down a route. I don't, I don't like that route. No, oh, I, love the, I love the saying, uh, make a friend. <laughs> you can't make a sale. Oh, yeah. That's brilliant. Can't make a sale, make a friend. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess, um, I mean, I personally, I worked in sales for a bit and I remember the best, the best, you know, clients I had and the, and the best meetings I had even with them, make a sale were the ones that, you know, you felt you connected with the most. I definitely. hundred percent. I've got people, um, I've actually sold less cars to my friends than I actually have to new clients but who have become friends. So we've done, I think, over 37,000 cars since we started. All individuals, not 10 at a time, one-on-one, -on -one, multiple, multiple repeat business customers who just keep coming back for more, whether that's on our emergency services side or the military. It's If you get that good level of service long-term, then they're going to come back and back and back. And that's what you want. Sales isn't about today's sale. Sale is about building a relationship and having repeat customer 10 times over. That's what sales is about. And that's the, that, that should be the same for whether you're selling, you know, coffee machines or photocopiers or, or cars. Car is more emotionless because you're 
it's something someone's personal to them. They're going to remember their first car. They're going to remember the, the journeys that they've done or whatever. So it becomes a very, very emotional purchase and expensive purchase. So you've got to make sure that, that you get it right um, from that side of things. But having that long-term approach um, is everything uh, from that side, in my, in my opinion, anyway. And you said you mentioned the stuff you're doing now, and you I go back to when you said, you know, you left, you were looking for, you know, you became the top salesman, you were looking for, you know, weren't really an entrepreneur then, but the thing, mm -hmm. what, to the, the people listening, the people watching, what is the thing you do now, and what is it that you're trying to do? Yeah, so so we have two brands, one for forces, which is for people who are serving and retired. So we pioneered a, a scheme uh, called Forces Cars Direct that allows that client or customer to save thousands on a new car. And we also have a, a similar scheme called Motorsource Group, which offers pretty much the same savings for um, our you know, hardworking public sector workers of the prison, fire, police, NHS and teachers. And our mantra as a business is to put that awareness out to them, to give back to them because public sector workers don't get paid or respected as much as people in the private sector um, from that side. So giving something back is important, not just on a saving of a vehicle, but also for charities as well that are associated with the police or the NHS or the military. You know, I've been, I've been factoring in the military for over 30 years and you always want to constantly give back. So, so we have a, you know, a great team, you know, just under 20 employees and their focus, I think, is in that same manner, whether they're marketing or administration or sales. And I think it's important just to continue that and follow down what we're trying to do as a business to, to, to them so that they can grow uh, from that side. We still got the very first employee who started with me over 20 years ago still with us today um, from that side of things. So it's nice to make a mention to Laura. Uh, from that side yeah no and for you, for you Steve, what is what is the future of uh forces direct what's the future like for you would you want to see yourself in five years doing i think that's it's more of the same um we've got other challenges in the marketplace we've obviously overcome in the last 10 years the financial recessions that we had and the global um, pandemic which has come on board um, which is associated now with you know supplier issues and so on. So there are there's always constant challenges. Um, you've always got to adapt as a business. You've always got to find new markets to go into. Um, at the moment, we're looking into new corporate um, market spaces, which could be of anything that a corporate um, identity might want or a business might want, whether that's vans or, or normal cars. Um, so that's a focus for us at the moment to try and grow that and ultimately. Not everyone in the military has heard about us. Not everyone in the NHS or teachers has heard about us. So we've obviously got to consistently grow the awareness of where we want to be. Ultimately, in five years, where do I want to be? A massive company and selling the business one day. Hopefully, that would be a nice one so that I can look to retire and get myself, you know, an even nicer car than I've currently got today. That might be a focus. But you know what? In five years, maybe I love it so much I want to continue and do that. The great thing with entrepreneurs is that they never have really, you have targets, you have ideas, but, but when you get there, you just replace that with another set of targets and another set of ideas. So there's never, it's a never ending travelator going up with for success of something, whether it's investment into other businesses or other ideas, there's always something that 
is always dragging that entrepreneur higher each time. And you've interviewed, I'm sure, a number of people. I'm sure you get that from most entrepreneurs. There's never, it's never empty here. Never gets, you know, um, level. It's always something that just comes up and, and decides. I created this market out of nothing and the emergency services and the military. So although I don't know what will happen in five years, I'm sure I'll have other ideas and thoughts and, and processes that I can say, well, that's a great idea. Shall we do that? And that's a great idea. Shall we do that? The biggest thing that I would definitely say as a business and an entrepreneur is to have a team around you, have a, have a good team that you trust, not micromanage. It's the worst thing you can do. You've got to rely on people to firstly do their jobs, but also allow them to make mistakes because everyone makes mistakes. Everyone has to learn, you know, not stand on them when they make a mistake, but encourage them and pick them up and put your arm around them when you need to. Everyone's different. Um, but my experience, that's that's definitely the best way of having a team that can grow. It's why we've grown. We could grow bigger. We could add more people for the sake of more people. But that's not how I do business. Business is about also profitability. Business is about being lean. Business is about making sure that every efficiency that you have within the business works fully. Because when you get pandemics and you get financial crisis, then the last thing you want is to suddenly shed load a load of people that you can't afford. So I think that's an also a good tool for people is to don't expand too much. Um, otherwise, you find the, the steep coming backwards is uh, very, very steep. So uh, some good learnings that I've had in the past that I've learned from. I've, I've made mistakes, 100% made mistakes, lots of mistakes in people, lots of mistakes in how we process things. But I don't let it bother me. You have to, you know, learn from it, understand it. People say, put it in a box and put it somewhere else. I don't, I don't say that. That's not, I think that's the, the wrong phrase. Nothing should be put away and forgotten about. You should learn from things, obviously, and understand things, and then use that mistake in the past, if you have done, to make sure you don't make the same mistakes in the future. So for me, it's always an evolution of earning and all, of, of learning and always an evolution of um, you know, uh, understanding of different things. I don't know it all. Um, that's why you have people that you can bounce off and that you can, um, uh, you know, not massage your ego. Don't, I'm not interested in people who do that. Uh, I'd rather get people who say they don't agree with me. Um, I don't like that. But when you leave the office, you will leave the office with an agreement of whatever it is that's moving forward. And that's the process, whether it's my idea or someone else's idea. It doesn't make a difference to me as long as the process is followed to create that moving forward. That's great. Um, so before before we come towards the end, there is one question I'd like to ask you before the quick ones, and it is: Do you oh, have, yeah. do you have that suit and tie feeling now? Um, ironically, I wear a shirt, obviously today. But when I first started in the, the the car trade of running my own business, which would would be two thousand and one now, I would imagine, and uh, I wore a suit and tie all the time, all the time. I loved buying ties. I loved buying cufflinks. I loved buying belts. I loved being smart. And for me, that was an epitome of where I wanted to be when I was younger, of having that business attire, uh, especially if I was going to meet manufacturers or going to meet potential partners and so on and so forth. Um, I think over time, though, you will have to be adaptive as a business. And um, unless it's a suit and tie event, I probably wouldn't wear one today. Modern business day reflects the fact that we're all modern. You know, whether it's um, 
yes, Alan Sugar wore a suit and tie all day, Richard Branson probably wouldn't. Other people probably wouldn't. And and I've done just as much business without it. And the people I meet, I always feel overdressed. So I, you tone it down to the, the meetings that you're at. Most of my meetings are either on a golf course or in a coffee shop in reality, uh, initially to meet people. So I, I loved the fact that it was part of my journey that I wanted to have that as a, as a measure of success. Um, but you also can't not change the dynamic if things have changed around you. Um, you know, 20 years ago, people walked into showrooms to buy cars. You know, we were very one of the first to just be an internet based um, type of broker. Nowadays, everyone uses it. So what we're going to do in three years, I don't know. You've got to be adaptive. You've got to always change that side. So I, I did love it. I'm glad you brought that up. But yeah, not anymore. But I did love wearing it um, uh, from the from the initial starts. Yeah, no, there's some things I go into with it. With like, I feel I'm addressed and I'm like, why have I worn a suit into this, this room or why am I wearing a shirt? I'm really like, I guess that's a, for me anyway, it's a uh, it's a preconception I have about what yeah. business should be and what business looks like. If I go into a meeting with anyone, it's um, maybe fill the room out beforehand. But yeah. And I know we've got these five questions Absolutely. that are coming up and it's um, sort of okay. quick fire. Five so questions, I'll, right? Go I'll, ahead. I'll start, quick, I'll start quick fire ones. Don't say that. I'll have to take. I'll have to take cover if you say quick fire. Oh, it's fine. I can. We can always um, edit it so it sounds quick. <laughs> the first one is: What is your ultimate three car garage? <laughs> My ultimate three car garage. Oh, do you know what? I've never been asked that, so I'm not sure it's going to be a quick answer. Um, I would have to say it's got to be a Ferrari. Okay. Um, as a sports car, I prefer the Ferrari name to the Lamborghini. Um, it doesn't have to be red, um, you know, because Ferraris can be in different colours. But I did a Ferrari day at St Andrews a couple of years ago, which was the Ferrari Portofino. So uh, I've never driven any other Ferrari. So I'm going to have to say Ferrari Portofino would be one. Um, my second car, it's got to be a practical car, um, simply because for me, it, you need something that's an everyday use, um, if I'm honest. So that's my workhorse. That would be my Volvo XC60, which I have today. It's great for four or five people in it. Great for golf clubs. Um, feel high up on the road as well. Um, having bad knees, sports cars are not good for bad knees. Um, so that would be my car number two. And my car number three, that's a good one. You'd have to pick something that is just completely different. Um, if they could, I would have something like a Hummer. Uh, I've driven a Hummer before. We took an actual Hummer. We used to sell Hummers to um, people in the UK um, through a company that came through from America. Um, it was a beast of a car. You could never park it anywhere. It was only left-hand drive. And if someone's going to look at you in a car, that's the car they're going to look at you in. And um, so that was that was an awful car to drive, but it's cool to have, if that makes sense. Or something that's jacked up, that's, that's something like that. Um, so that would be my three different cars uh, from that side of things. Probably a red, probably a red Ferrari, if I'm honest. Yeah, red Ferrari, blue Volvo, probably a black Hummer. That would be that would be my case. My min, although I'd need a, another space because my wife wouldn't drive any of those. She'd have to have a Mini. So um, she's she can't drive anything bigger than a Mini, unfortunately. That's fair enough. I'm, I'm with her on the Mini front anyway. That's a, that's a car that I have a special attachment to. But yeah, yeah no. Minis. The next question is Steve. You have any car? To drive on any road or track, but you can only do it once. Where would you go and what would you take? Um, I would like to. 
I would say that, you know, I've done track drives on that side, but you did say road. So I would say Route 66 would be what I would like to drive. And I'd like to drive it in an old um, 50s style convertible Thelma Louise, Louise style of car down visiting, you know, cafe after cafe after cafe all the way across Route 66. That would be my style. Track driving, it gets boring once you've done two tracks around the track. So for me, doing a you know 600 mile journey down Route 66 would be much more appealing for me. Yeah, um, and this next question is is designed to sort of say like if you could do anything, right, anything in the world, money was not an object, what would you do? Go into space. I'm very very interested in astronomy and the size of the universe, the speed of lights, all of that. The, how insignificant and small we are as a planet compared to the absolute size of the cosmos. So for me to, I don't look back on life normally, um, memories are great and everything is that, but to look back at the earth from space would be my ultimate dream. I do have 200 or 300,000 virgin points, which I can put into a lottery to get a virgin galactic um a trip to space, not sure I'd ever win it. Um, but um, that would be, I need it, by the way, I need a million points for that as well. So I'm gonna have to travel a lot more to get that. And um, and again, like I said, it's a lottery. So for me, 100% to go into space is my ultimate, absolutely. So what is the advice you would give to a young Steve or someone starting out? Um, in any business, not necessarily cars or life. Um, don't be serious, okay? Don't be too serious in yourself. Be young, enjoy your life. You know, if you're 16, go out and experience the world until you're 22, 23, okay? Because when you start getting a little bit older, that's when things need to get serious, whether it's saving for a house or thinking of family or thinking of, of careers because you can't get back time. You can't get back youth. So you should really go out and enjoy yourself as much as possible. Don't regret anything. I don't regret anything. There's nothing I've ever done. I've made mistakes, but they were mistakes made on decisions that I made at that time. So i come to making something today. Either it is wrong or it's wrong or right in the future. I don't look back and say I should have done a different thing. I've never done that. So never be too serious never regret anything, enjoy your life as much as you can. And then when there's a time to, to take the next stage of evolution, you know, uh, of, of your own journey, then sit down and decide what you want to do. It's too early, too fun. You go to school, you're told to go to school. You, then you have to do the exams, you're told to do the exams. You have to do higher education, you're told to do all of that. At that point, the last thing you want to be told is to go get a job or do something else. Yes, you can do get jobs, of course, but enjoy your time enjoy your time off you have to make time for yourself anyone who says they have no time to do something it's just rubbish that's just no time to manage things you're managing things wrong you have to have time to manage it and whether it's a i'll take two hours playing golf here or i'm going to take two days of reading a book or whatever it is you have this decision to make that instead of working seven days a week i did seven days a week for six months seven months eight months whatever it was and at the end of it, yes, I learned a lot, 
Um, but I was burned out, absolutely burned out. So you have to have that freedom of mind and, and set yourself apart from what's around you. So that that you've got to relax. You've got to do that. Yeah. And the last question, Steve, is what do you love most about cars? What do I, what, sorry? What do you love most about cars? One thing I love most about cars, and I love driving. So if a nice song comes on the radio, I'm almost home. I'll probably continue driving to listen to that nice song. Um, so for me, um, freedom is what car gives you. It's, you know, you're away from the office, the home, whatever it is. In most cases, if I'm driving, I'm going down the country, up and down the country to a meeting. So I'm always on my own. So for me, being in that car is just total freedom. Window down, listening to whatever music I, I like, whether it's actual music or a, you know, or a talk sport or a podcast or something like that. That for me is interesting. It also, ironically, doesn't give you freedom because nowadays you have a phone and people call you no matter where you are. So it does allow me also the opportunity with the modern technology, you know, to link in and, and contact any of my contacts and phone phone work or phone this and phone that and so on. So you're, you're never really free, um, which goes back to my previous one, always make time for yourself away from that. So when I do sports or I do something, phone is completely off. It's not in the corner waiting to be wrong. In the car, I've got to leave the phone on, unfortunately. But I do love traveling and having that freedom. Having a restaurant, you get somewhere and you have a nice restaurant, you've never eaten there before. Uh, it's just a beautiful journey to have, wherever that may be. That's great. And Steve, it's, it's been a pleasure to, to learn a bit more about you your journey and thank you for sharing your um your, your time with me do appreciate it no it's great to to be on here harry obviously my camera's um got back to normal now for whatever reason that was um from that side but no it's great to come on it, it's always nice to share some experiences or stories with people I, I hate talking to groups of people but when i when i have a beer and i have talked to individual people and so on it it's such a nice feeling to to showcase what it means to me personally you know i've been lucky in my business Originally, when you, you talk about what was the motivation, what's this, what's that? I mean, I've, obviously, I've been in the military. You can see the medals there. I've met some, you know, Anne Middleton's a pal, and I've played golf with famous people. Those are nice things that come upon from that, but it doesn't change the fact that you still have thoughts and desires to continue and grow grow the business. And that that's, I've been lucky, lucky, I think, over time. I saw the opportunity. It didn't pass me by. I never wanted to be one of those people that said, Oh, I could have done that, but never actually did it. I always, I'm always the guy that says, "I've done it, but I failed." But at least I did it. That's that's for me as a person. So no, thank you very much for for allowing me to come on the podcast today. I, I love what you do, and I think it's fantastic. And you you spoke to so many um, uh, interesting, different people. I have to say, from that side. So thanks, thank you very much, Harry. I wanted to say a massive well done and thank you for taking your time to listen to what me and my guests have to say podcast was designed to help people in the automotive and motorsport industries and so if you think i've done that please hit follow on this app i would really appreciate it and it would help us get bigger and better guests see you next time